Well, if you would, please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Colossians. We're approaching the end of our series this summer on the heart of God. If you're visiting with us, normally we do a book study where we go through a book of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And in the summer, we take a break from that and do an exegetical series of topical sermons. We look at a topic of the Bible. And in these morning sermons, we've been looking together at the heart of God, His character. And we come now maybe to the last week. I have one more week before I go on vacation, and I'll come back next week and either preach the gospel to you or maybe find another sermon to preach on the heart of God. But we're getting to the, to the lick log and down to the practical application of it. I want to look with you this morning at the book of Colossians. In this book, uh, it's, the, it's, it's one of the four of Paul's prison epistles. You remember at the end of the book of Acts, we find Paul in Rome under house arrest, and from there he writes four letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. We call them his prison epistles, and they're quite similar, especially Ephesians and Colossians. And uh, we'll dive in here and read the first chapter, and at least the first 14 verses. Please listen carefully. This is the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So, he's thanking God for these people because he's heard about their their faith, their love, and their hope, that trinity of Christian virtues. And where do these virtues come from? Of this you have heard before in the Word of God, the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved brother, or sorry, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. It, it, it always interests me to see how Paul always goes back to the importance of the Word of God affecting the minds of God's people, that they've heard of this hope before in the Word of the truth, the gospel, which is bearing fruit as far as the sun shines. Verse 6, you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow minister, that it's because the gospel engaged these people's minds that it transformed their lives. As we've said to you again and again, if you want to live a way you've never lived before, you must first come to think a way you've never thought before. We need to be transformed you remember, by the renewing of our minds. And it's a constant theme in Paul's letters. So, these people are going on well in the Lord. Verse 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled 
with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. It's always interesting to see Paul praying for people. These people are going on well, but he says, we're not going to stop praying for you. And Paul's prayers are a master class on what to pray for your wife, what to pray for your husband, what to pray for your children, what to pray for your neighbors. What, what are God's priorities for you? And Paul here says the essence of his prayer is that he wants you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Uh, wisdom is the skillful application of truth to life. It's living skillfully before God. Understanding is more specific. It's the individual moment when you've got to decide what to say, what not to say, um, when to speak, when to remain silent, when to act, when to watch and wait, uh, when to confront an issue, when to sit back and observe it. That takes wisdom and understanding, and it's spiritual wisdom and understanding uh, given by the Holy Spirit of God. And Paul wants you to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and the ability to practice that will in your life. Why? Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. He wants you to live the way a Christian ought to live, he wants you to be, live a life that's fully pleasing to God. What does that life look like? Well, Paul tells you in the rest of the prayer, and there are, the, there are four ing verbs. We call them gerunds if you're a grammar Nazi, um, or participles if you study Greek or Latin. And these, um, these verbs tell you what a life pleasing to God looks like. There's four of them. Bearing fruit in every good work. That's the first increasing in the knowledge of God, that's the second, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, that's the third, giving thanks to the Father, that's the fourth, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, <clears throat> in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. We've been thinking about theology, truth, in the last few weeks. Truth about God, right? But truth should never stop with just an idea in the head. It should always lead into the life, like Alistair Begg's podcast. It's truth for life, or faith for living, as um, Michael Milton's podcast is. And Paul wants you and I to be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And what I ask you this morning, is truth doing that to you? Is it enabling you to live a God-honoring life that fully pleases God? Well, another way to ask the question is, how are you doing spiritually? Are you growing as a Christian? 
Is your capacity to please God growing? Are you more pleasing to God this year than you were last year? Now, you might think to yourself, that's really strange because I thought justification took care of all that. I thought the cross kind of took care of all my inconsistencies, all my inadequacies, and all my failures. And so, you know, of course I'm pleasing to God because I'm in Christ. And that is true. I don't want to deny that. It's true in particular when it comes to the fear of damnation. If you're a Christian this morning and you're trusting in Jesus, like me, though you deserve to be damned, you'll never be damned. Christ's obedience and blood hides all of your transgressions from view. You are in union with Christ, um, like a husband and wife in union, sharing the same credit card account, and all of the, the debits of the one are imputed to the other, and all of the credits to the one are imputed to the other. And so, on the cross, my bank account of debt merged with Christ's bank account of credit, and God dealt with him as a sinner, and now God deals with me as a son in the Son, right? That union. And so, in that moment, the technical term is justification. All of my sins are forgiven. That's half of it. And the other half is all of Christ's limitless, perfect, spotless righteousness are imputed to my account. Right? And that's wonderful. And I can never be more justified on my best days, and I can never be less justified on my worst days. Justification is a flat line. Infinite righteousness has been imputed to our accounts. Having said that, though, God is our Father, and He's intensely concerned with our maturation, our growth in godliness, right? And so, while whenever we sin, whenever we backslide, whenever we um, fall away from Him, God is never going to damn us to hell. That'll never be an issue. We're always His children. We can't de-child ourselves. Yet, God is concerned with how we are doing. Like, for example, Paul says to the Ephesians at the same time in Colossians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking be put away from you along with all malice. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The way you speak to your wives, husbands, the way wives you speak to your husbands, parents, the way you speak to your children can profoundly grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That doesn't take away from the fact that your sins have been forgiven, but the same God who has forgiven you your sins will never damn you for your sins, has redeemed you from your sins, can still be very profoundly grieved by the way you and I speak, right? You can be more or less pleasing to God. Otherwise, Paul would never pray, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And the clear implication of that is Christians in the church, some are more pleasing to God and some are less pleasing to God. They're all fully justified, but some are more mature, some are less mature. Some are more godly and some are less godly. And you've got to hold both those truths in tension, otherwise you've only got half a truth. And a half a truth told as a whole truth is a whole untruth, right? And so, the question I want to ask you this morning is, how are you doing? Are you, are you growing in your capacity to please God? 
It's like your children. There's always one of your children doing better than the others. And, and as God looks down upon us, some of us here are doing better than others. How are you doing in your soul? And you think to me, you say, you ask me, well, how would I know? What does a life that's fully pleasing to God look like? And thank you for asking. Paul says there are four things. The first thing about a life that is fully pleasing to God is that it's bearing fruit for God, bearing fruit in every good work, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What's that look like? Fully pleasing to Him. Bearing fruit in every good work. Now, good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. What is a good work? Well, a good work's got to be done according to a good standard. If, you're, if your children are drawing a circle, there's a standard for a circle, right? And it's a, it's a circular shape whose radius remains the same all the way around its circumference. If it doesn't do that, it's not a circle. It might be an oval or a blob. It might be a really nice blob, but it's not a circle. There's a standard by which we measure circles. And the standard by which a good work is measured is the word and will of God, which is why Paul prays earlier on, I want you to be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom, understanding. It takes wisdom to apply that, but there's a standard. Also, it's got to be done not just by a good standard, but it's got to be done for a good reason, right? Like, why did the chicken cross the road? It's the perennial question. But the why matters. Did he cross the road to rob the bank, to mug the wee old lady, or to help her pick up her purse, which she dropped. The why matters. And the why of our good works matters. It's got to be done for a good reason. And it's got to be done in a good way, right? If the little old lady's lost all her money from the purse, the chicken can't go and rob a bank to help her pay for whatever she wants to buy in the grocery store. That's a good work, helping her pay for groceries. But robbing a bank? No. It's like Christians I knew back in another part of America. They were compulsive gamblers, but they tithed all their winnings. You know, I don't want to be too particular about where you, we get the church's tithe from, but gambling is not a way to help the church pay for her bills, right? Um, you've got to be done in a good way, and it's got to be done to a good end for the glory of God. Those are the, all the different capacities of a good work. And Paul wants you and me to grow in our capacity for good works. Are you doing that? Are you bearing fruit in every good work? You're not saved by good works, of course, but you are saved for them. Husbands, are you bearing fruit as a husband, loving your wife, laying your life down for her, praying? For, are you praying more with your wife this year than you were last year? When she's nervous, stressed out, locked in conflict, everything's upside down, inside out in her mind, are you growing in your capacity to take her to the Psalms or to the Bible and help her get her mind straight again? Wives, are you growing in your capacity to speak respectfully to your husband, to encourage him, to strengthen him? Parents with your children, are you growing in your capacity to bring up your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, to have bear spiritual fruit in their lives by spiritually redemptive conversations and, at times, discipline. Children, are you bearing fruit in every good work in the house, in every good work? 
when mum and dad ask you to help? Do you, do you, have, do you have immediate cheerful obedience, OCO, as Steve May likes to speak about? Um, immediate cheerful obedience. Do you tell the truth truthfully? One of Steve's lessons. When, when mum's put the cookies out on the counter and you've eaten three of them, and your mum says, did you eat one of those cookies? You think, well, I didn't eat one of them. <laughs> I ate three of them. No, mum, I didn't eat one of those cookies. That's not telling the truth truthfully. At church, are you, are you bearing fruit here in church and ministry? It's amazing how serving in the church can contribute to your spiritual growth. Um, and I thank God, a couple, I haven't seen the recent numbers, but a couple of years ago, 78% of our members were engaged in regular weekly and monthly church ministry service. Reading an article in Leadership Magazine by Eric Swanson, What You Get From Giving, he said, I surveyed my church to see if people saw a relationship between ministering to others and spiritual growth. When asked to what extent has your ministry or service to others affected your spiritual growth, 92% answered positively. None said that, yes, serving at the church has hindered my spiritual growth. 63% said that serving in the church was equally significant, equally productive of spiritual growth as reading their Bible and praying. That's, that's incredible. 24% thought actually serving had an even greater effect in helping them to grow than reading their Bible and praying. I maybe disagree with that. You've got to read your Bible and pray. But if you don't serve, you kind of have spiritual constipation. Everything's coming in and nothing's coming out. The illustration breaks down, but we'll leave it there. <laughs> Over um, 50, 58% of those who are not serving in the church were not satisfied or were only somewhat satisfied with their level of spiritual growth. If you're not happy, if you're not feeling you're growing and thriving in your soul, I'd almost bet you, he says, that you're not serving in the church. If you want to, serve, if you want to know where you can serve here, Chris Elsie, we have a staff member um, given great genius by God to oversee all of the ministries of our church and to organize them to make sure that the leaders are thriving in them and that they are thriving in their ministries, uh, and the ministries are thriving in them. And uh, he's very, very gifted at looking at people and figuring out where could you serve, where could you fit in. So if you're not serving and you want to serve in the church, speak to Chris. Afterwards, he'd be glad to send you in the right direction. Or if you, if you see there's a hole in our service that we're not serving a need that needs to be met, well, speak to Chris and see if we can start a new ministry. That's often how ministries start. Someone sees a need and they say something and you'll find your soul growing. So, that's the first, the first sign of a life that's fully pleasing to God, is you're bearing fruit in every good work. The second sign of a life pleasing to God is that they enjoy deepening intimacy with God, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing. Now, the word here for knowledge is more than just kind of head knowledge. The Greeks have a word for that. It's gnosis. Uh, from which we get the word Gnostic or knowledge even. But the word here is epignosis, which is an intensified word. And it has the idea of practical knowledge or experiential knowledge, something you feel, right? So, um, you might watch 
a Netflix documentary on big wave surfers. Or you might be a physics professor and you kind of one of those nerdy people, no offense, and you, you, you look at the, the, the kind of the wave pools and you see how waves move across water and there's like, you can put in obstacles to the wa waves refract around it and so forth and so on. That's the right word. And you can measure all that and, and your, your wavelength and the velocity of the wave and all those things. And you have it all down. Um, that's one kind of knowledge of a wave. But then there's the knowledge that Laird Hamilton has and those big wave surfers who go down to that place in, in Portugal where those 100-foot waves break, and they feel the surging power of the, of the ocean. Well, you can have a knowledge of God that's like the, you know, the, the stodgy physics professor looking at waves in a wave pool, or you can have the, 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 the knowledge of God like Laird Hamilton knows waves where you feel his surging power. And that's the kind of knowledge Paul wants you to have. He wants you to be a man or a woman or a boy or a girl whose theology goes to work in your heart and life and can actually do some good. And you're growing and increasing in that knowledge, are you? Right, so it's one thing to know that God is strong. God is our refuge, our strength, our help in tight places close at hand. But is your ability to actually draw strength from God into your soul, is that increasing? It's one thing to know the Lord is good, and His mercies are over all of His works. He's righteous in all of His ways. He's kind in all of His deeds. But it's another thing to be able to rejoice in that goodness in the midst of hardship and um, to rescue yourself when you've got a bad case of the grumbliness, uh, and you're grumbling and complaining, and, and everything's, oh, woe is me, and being able to pull yourself out of that. Um, not because your life is good, but because you know God is good. That's the kind of knowledge Paul wants. It's one thing to know that God's got a plan, that the steps of a man are established by the Lord, and God delights in His way, and when He falls, He will not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds His hand. It's another thing to know that whenever life takes an unexpected turn, where the plan doesn't fall out the way you wish it had, and been able to submit your heart to the plan of God and say, Lord, I know that you know the thoughts you think toward me, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give me a future and a hope, and to, to, to kind of find contentment as you rest in Christ. It's one thing to know that God is for you, who can stand against you. But then one of the alphabet mafia at work is against you, and they're, they're, they're trying to sell you diversity pins. You don't want to wear a diversity pin. You know, they want you to put a rainbow flag on your desk, and you don't want to put a rainbow flag on your desk unless you want to write Genesis 6 to 9 over it. Um, and they wouldn't see the joke. But, you know, um, and you're stressed out, and they're working behind the scenes to get you fired, and maybe they're getting all the promotions, and you feel really un it's not fair. And, and then you go to Psalm 37, do not fret because of evildoers, be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. And you can connect the dots between what God says about life in His Word and what's going on in your life, and you're not going to be envious, you're not going to fret because you've got active knowledge of God, right? And that's the kind of knowledge Paul is looking for growing, increasing in the knowledge of God, not just knowing about God, but actually knowing Him, knowing Him.
And thirdly, Paul says, are you enduring hardship for God with joy, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy? Now, a couple of things to see here. First of all, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. Like, that's one of those words, what's, what's according to mean to? It's like, uh, what's, what's that mean? Well, what it means is according to the standard of. When you're being strengthened, Paul says, you're being strengthened not according to the standard, not according to the measure of your strength, but you're being strengthened according to the measure of His glorious might. Makes all the difference in the world. Strengthened. Now, what are you being strengthened for? All endurance and patience with joy. Now, endurance and patience are similar words, but they actually have a different meaning in the Greek. Endurance speaks about enduring difficult problems, and patience tends to mean more enduring difficult people, which pretty much solves, sums up why life is so hard, difficult problems and difficult people. If there were none of, if both of them could go away, what a wonderful world it would be. The problem is we'd have to go away too, because we also are difficult people who cause difficult problems. But I digress. For all endurance and patience with joy. One commentator makes the comment that the danger with endurance and patience is you can kind of be kind of, you know, that stiff upper lip British person, not really smiling, you're a bit gloomy, you know, a bit of an Eeyore. We'll just keep pressing on, life is hard, oh dear, oh, woe is me, but we're going to keep on going. Like, yeah, you give that to Eeyore, keeps on going, he doesn't stop, he just keeps on going. I wish he might go away, but he keeps on going. Right? He doesn't give up. He's always there in the background. Grow, we're going to keep enduring this awful day. These people are so difficult. The weather on vacation is so hot. The sand is so burning my feet. I mean, it's like, it's like, ah. Uh, um, but he's enduring, right? He's, he's going along. But Paul doesn't want endurance and patience. He wants endurance and patience with joy, right? And Jay Adams is so helpful um, if there are two characteristics, he says, that are lacking in many counselees. I see, he says, it's patience with joy. The anger, discouragement, impatience with others that so often characterizes them is all too apparent. To mention joy in the midst of trial seems almost obscene to the modern Christian. He's so caught up in his own rights that he thinks little of how the Lord is working out His great plan in his life. Yet to be patient for God to answer prayer, especially in regard to the conduct of others, and to remain joyful throughout difficulties, knowing that all is working together for good, is essential to the solution of many counselees' problems. In other words, what um, Jay Adams is saying is, nine times out of ten, when I see somebody, or Kyle sees somebody, or Phyllis was in the early service. She sees someone, she does counseling with us in the church, especially among women. We often see people who want other people fixed, right? Like, fix my husband, or fix my wife, or fix my children. And generally, the thing about fixing is they aren't the ones who need fixing. Most of the time, we're the ones who need fixing, right? 
And our capacity to endure and to be patient with joy, that's often the major problem. If we could just do that, if we could respond to difficult problems and difficult people with joy, nine-tenths of the problem would be fixed immediately. We're the problem. Are you growing in your capacity to cope with difficult people and difficult problems? It's a sign of a person who's fully pleasing to God. When you, when you can soar with the eagles despite being pecked half to death by the mosquitoes. No easy feat. Um, like, listen to the psalmist in Psalm 57. We need to move quickly here, but Psalm 57. He's in a difficult spot. Be merciful to me, be merciful to me, he says to God. He's looking to God for help. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. Here's a man, he's like one of those guys with a cell phone taking video of a tornado coming towards his front porch. They can get to your basement. Well, God is his basement. He takes refuge in God while these tornadic storms roll, barrel through his life. He says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. Here's a man, he's, he's under the gun, and we'll see in a second, but he's confident that God is at work fulfilling His purpose in my life. He will stand from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. He feels like he's being trampled underfoot. So, I pictured yesterday of a guy trampled in an Antifa riot. He had boot marks all over his face. That's how this man feels. He's trampled underfoot, and he says, God will put him to shame. He will send out his loving kindness and his faithfulness. Then he says, my soul is amidst lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. Who are they? The children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Ever feel people around you? Their their teeth are spears and arrows, their tongues are sharp swords. That's the psalmist. And then he does does an amazing thing. Before he talks about them again, he lifts up his voice to God. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Here's a man who's more concerned about God's glory than his own safety. And he's back again to his trouble. He says, they have set a net for my feet. My soul was dismayed, cast down. It really discouraged him. He's not a, he's not a um, stoic. He just doesn't, it, it bothers him, right? They dug a pit for my feet, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast. My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, and your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Here's a man who's been bitten half to death by people, stabbed by people, trampled by people, but he, he maintains his equilibrium by looking to God, and, and, and his theology is real, and it's growing, and he's able to endure difficult people and difficult problems with joy because of his theology. It's not just here. It's getting down into his heart, right? 
Is that you? It can become you if you pray. And then lastly, are you a thankful person? Are you giving thanks to God? Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We should never outgrow our gratitude to God for the gospel. And those who are fully pleasing to God never do. Here's this man and his heart overflowing with the four I-O-N words of the gospel, adoption, giving thanks to the Father. I'm no longer a bastard child of hell. I've been adopted by the Father. He's my Father. God is my Father. Adoption. Liberation. He has delivered me from the domain of darkness, that sphere where sin and evil reign and where ignorance of God and His ways are everywhere. He's delivered me from the domain of darkness and transferred me into the kingdom of His beloved Son. What a difference, the domain of darkness and the kingdom of the Son of His love. Could there be a bigger change? Whatever else is going on in your life, Christian, you're no longer in the domain of darkness under the thrall of hell and sin and damnation, but you're, you've been delivered by a better king into a better kingdom who sustains all who falls and raises up all who are bowed down. He's a good God and a gracious God. Adoption, liberation. Then qualification, He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Just think about that. What do you have to do to qualify yourselves for heaven? Zip. Nothing. The work of qualification belongs only to God. He has qualified you. He doesn't help you qualify yourself. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Adoption, liberation, qualification, and absolution. We can't let the Catholics have all the good words. In whom we have redemption, the kingdom of His Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That God has taken all of your sins and put them on the back of the Lamb of God, and He's borne them away as far as the east is from the west. They'll never come back to haunt you again. Paul wants you to be fully pleasing to him, but becoming fully pleasing to God has nothing to do with your qualification, your ticket for heaven. It's a gift of God by the absolution, the redemption purchased by Jesus Christ. And that, that fuels his gratitude. Is your life fueled by grumbling? It's amazing how often we grumble about the little things, the weather, other people's driving, other people's behavior, just little things. Grumble, grumble, grumble. And that's one thing. As men, God really challenged me in this. I, 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 my, I, I never want my wife or my children to hear me mention a grumbling word again. That's a goal I'm not living up to, but I'm striving for it because there's nothing undermines a leader faster than a grumble. We're there to connect God to problems, not to grumble about them. 
And there's nothing faster than the attitude of gratitude to conquer grumbling. So, what's a life look like that's pleasing to God? When you really understand the heart of God and the theology of the gospel, it's bearing fruit in every good work. It's increasing in the practical, experiential knowledge of God. It's being strengthened to endure hardship with endurance and joy, and it's a thankful heart giving thanks to the Father that I'm His son, His daughter, and that heaven is my home and Christ is my Savior. And that's the, that's the life of pleasing God. Is that, does that describe you, my brother, my sister? Come to Jesus this morning and let Him teach you, fill you, instruct you, that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner fully pleasing to God, bearing fruit in every good work, and so forth. Amen. Let's pray together. O Lord, our God and our Father, make us like a weaned child on our heavenly Father's lap, and quieten our hearts and our souls, and lead us, O Lord, in Your ways, and help us to live a life that is fully pleasing to You, O Lord that we live the way we ought to live as those who believe the gospel. For Christ's sake, amen.